welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of equine colic from a veterinarian's perspective. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2020 by Merck Animal Health. Our guest for this episode is Louise Southwood, BSC vet, BVSC, MS, PhD, and a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons and ACVECC. She is a professor of emergency medicine and critical care at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine with research interests in equine colic and gastrointestinal disease. Thank you, Dr. Southwood, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about equine colic from a veterinarian's perspective. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, I love to talk about colic, so this is great. All right, well, let's jump right in and talk about early diagnosis and surgical treatment of strangulating obstructions. Yeah, thank you. This is an area that I am very passionate about. Um, as, as a colic surgeon, um, my goal is always to get the animal to surgery when it's healthy. Um, like systemically healthy, um, and also there's not too much damage to the bowel, and then ultimately to get it to surgery before it even needs a resection. Um, and so I can't do that without the help of, you know, early recognition by owners um, and also primary care veterinarians. Um, so it's absolutely critical. Um, it's an area of research that I'm particularly interested in. Um, and some of it can be you know, just paying attention to what the owner is telling you um, and also what the horse is doing. Um, and so, you know, if we can recognize these horses with strangulations early, get them referred early, get them to surgery early, um, and then we definitely have lower complications um, and better outcomes. Um, and today, we're not only just looking at outcome, you know, success isn't just being discharged from the hospital alive. Success is getting that animal back to its intended use, which may be a racehorse, it may be you know, a show jumping horse, or it may be a broodmare, but getting that animal um, back out doing what it was intended to do. Also, the other thing that I always look at is trying to be fiscally responsible. Um, and so the earlier we can see these animals, the fewer complications, and ultimately, hopefully we can keep the the expense associated with treatment, surgery, and perioperative care to a minimum. So what can, what can one do? Um, how can we recognize a strangulation? I mean, it can be tough. Um, obviously, the postpartum mare that um, is severely distended and is throwing herself down, that's pretty classic for a large colon volvulus. And I think getting, it's their life or death, their life or death within a few hours. And so I think most of the time we can recognize those horses pretty easily. Um, and I will say, if you've got a client that, or a farm manager, broodmare farm manager that uh, calls you up, says this mare falls a week ago, a month ago, she's really, really painful, you know, she's bloated, get that mare on a trailer and get her to a surgical facility because there is absolutely nothing you can do um, to stabilize her or anything. So that's one situation. Like I said, most of the time, they're pretty, um, that's pretty apparent. The small intestinal strangulations, horses with small intestinal strangulations, and even occasionally the small colon or descending colon strangulations can be a little bit more challenging to identify. And so 
some of the key things to just take into consideration. Obviously, if they're persistently painful or severely painful, referrals indicated whether it's a strangulation or not. Um, so if, for example, you've given an animal a dose of flinix and megalomin um, and banamine and a dose and some sedation and they're still painful, that's a time to have a conversation about a referral for, um, for that animal. Particularly, some of the particular cases that I look at, geriatric horses, they're two to three times more likely to have a strangulation than a non-geriatric horse. And by geriatric, I mean in their mid to late teens and older. So keep in mind, um, if you've got a geriatric horse presenting for colic and it's pretty, it's quite painful, I would wanna rule out a strangulation on that horse. The other thing about geriatric horses, they can be pretty stoic. Um, and I've definitely seen them with their, most common thing we see is a strangulating pedunculated lipoma and they will be standing there just looking at you. Um, and that's where, you know, they might not be showing the classic signs of colic. Occasionally they might look at their flank, if you pay a lot of attention to them, they sort of, sometimes they have a glazed look to their eye. If, especially a geriatric horse, but any horse with colic, if they've got abrasions, that is a pretty strong association anecdotally with a strangulating lesion. If they've been that painful at any point in time that they have beat themselves up, then you've got to be thinking of strangulation. The other thing I really look for as well is nostril flare and respiratory rate. Uh, so these horses, and, and just as an example with this, I had a, a geriatric horse come into the hospital the other day. It actually came in for lameness because it was kind of doing this collapsing, um, this collapsing on a timed kind end. Um, it had been found caught in a fence and so it came in as a lameness. And the first thing I noted about that horse is one, it wasn't that lame and two, this horse's nostrils were dilated or flared and it was very tachypnic and that horse ended up having a strangulating lipoma. So paying attention to those sorts of details um, can really, really help you. Um, the other thing, absent borborygmi. If borborygmi are absent, I get concerned um, that there's at least a surgical lesion, if not um, a strangulation. So, so that kind, that's kind of tough. That gives you a guideline. You know, if they're, you know, if you give them a dose of flunixin or a dose of sedation, you know, maybe a second dose of sedation, you know, without flunixamegalomin, and they're persistently painful, it's time to send them in. Other things to look for, uh, you know, the nostril flare, any abrasions, um, that is a red flag to me that this horse has a high likelihood of a strangulation, particularly if it's a geriatric horse. The other thing that you can do with becoming more and more available um, is ultrasound. Uh, there's um, some reports out of Europe where they've, um, it's called a flash ultrasound, fast localized abdominal sonography of horses, where you look in some key windows, one of which is the ventral abdomen. And one of the things you're looking for there is distended small intestine. And if you can identify distended small intestine, either ultrasonographically or on palpation per rectum, particularly if it's an older horse, I would be talking to the owner about referral as well. So they're kind of the key things. Um, they're kind of the key things looking, like I said, mostly small intestinal strangulations. 
Um, we talked about large colon volvulus already. Most of the time, um, those horses are pretty, um, pretty apparent because they're violently painful. They're very distended. It's often postpartum mares, or don't forget, geldings can get large colon volvulus as well. Um, we shouldn't forget small colon strangulations. Um, the most common cause of strangulation of the small colon or descending colon is also strangulating pedunculated lipoma. Um, I would say about 10% of our strangulating lipomas at our hospital are of the small colon. Um, and once again, it tends to be geriatric horses. Those horses are also quite painful, probably have abrasions, nostril flare. The thing that's a bit different about them, sometimes occasionally you can feel the pedicle going around um, the distal or caudal small colon and even rectum. Um, sometimes you can feel that actually on palpation. But the thing that's striking about these cases is you can actually feel dilated small colon um, with its very characteristic anti-mesenteric band. You can feel that on rectal examination. And they also have, usually typically have quite a bit of large colon distension and, and abdominal distension as well. So just don't forget about that um, type of strangulation as well. Um, just a little bit about what we do at a referral center, and this can definitely done, be done quite uh, in private practice. But one of the things we do is we run, we obviously do our physical examination and, and look at the animal carefully. Um, we do look for dilated small intestine, either per rectum or transabdominal uh, on ultrasound. We usually run, at least at our hospital, we run some um, preliminary uh, blood work. We look at blood glucose, uh, which does have, a, they're very hypoglycemic. There's a strong indication, strong suggestion that they have a strangulation. We look at blood lactate. Um, and then the other thing we do if we're you know, not convinced, um, we'll do abdominocentesis and peritoneal fluid analysis, looking at the color, um, the lactate concentration, comparing that to the lactate concentration in the blood, um, and also white count and protein, uh, depending on the case. But the key indication for us is the pain. And like I said, I look at abrasions, I look at nostril flare, I look at the animal's demeanor, um, and then uh, you know the preliminary blood work, palpation per rectum, ultrasound, dilate, finding dilated small intestine, and then if if we need additional information, abdominocentesis. Um, and like I said, like I, you know, I, I kind of wanted to talk about this um, just because I think we're doing better with these horses than we were doing um, 20, 30 years ago. Um, I think the outcome is much better than it used to be. And I think the main reason for that is we're seeing them sooner, we're getting them in sooner, but I still think we can also do better um, as well. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Banamine, through Nixon Meglumine, from Merck Animal Health. The pioneer NSAID for horses in the U.S., Banamine goes to work quickly to alleviate pain and inflammation from musculoskeletal disorders and visceral pain from colic to horses in your care. Don't get caught on call without it. Find out more about the science of pain relief at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. Do not use banamine in horses intended for human consumption. The effect of banamine paste on pregnancy has not been determined. See product label for complete safety information. And let's say that you're the veterinarian in the field and mm -hmm. you, 
determine that this is a horse that needs to be referred, how do you help these clients understand why you're going to send them to a referral facility? Okay, that's that's a great question. A couple of things with that. One, I think that's a conversation as a primary care veterinarian. And keep in mind, as a primary care veterinarian, you have a relationship with that client. Um, and they're looking to you for advice, management, and everything. And so I think having that conversation with the client before it's an emergency, I mean, if you're working, so, so you know, so the client's already thought about whether they're willing to refer it, whether they're willing to, um, you know, take the animal surgery, how much they would be willing to spend um, for this animal's medical and surgical care. That's good conversation to have um, before it's an emergency because emergencies can be very emotional. Sometimes people aren't thinking clearly. So that's the first thing, especially if it's a large barn, um, you know, where there's a lot of horses, knowing, okay, for each horse, um, what the expectations would be. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I mean, I think laying it out, um, you know, laying it out very um, clearly, you know, showing the owner, look, you know, he's got abrasions or look on his head and legs or, you know, look how he's breathing. Um, if you've got an ultrasound probe, which I think, you know, is, is a good thing if you're, if you're comfortable using it, um, showing them the distended intestine, you know, um, you know, and educating them um, on why, why you're sending it in. That's the first thing. The other thing, unfortunately, so, so making sure that they understand, um, you know, the criteria that you've identified that says, you know what, we should probably refer this animal in, um, you know, for further, I would say for further diagnostics and treatment. I wouldn't say necessarily for surgery because occasionally we get that animal that's referred in for surgery and we determine that it doesn't need surgery and um, the owner gets upset. So referred in for further evaluation and treatment. Um, and I think it's okay to have the conversation about surgery, but just sort of keep it open a little bit. The other thing is, um, the other thing is trying to find out from your client how much they are willing and able to spend. And I think unfortunately finances come into this um, and that involves, you know, having a relationship with your referral hospital or your surgical facility to know some of the prices, to know um, what they charge. I mean, we don't want to overestimate um, the cost of treatment because then people are, are going to, you know, decline. Um, and we don't want to underestimate it either because there's nothing worse than, you know, going through this and the client, you know, can't pay the bill or, you know, is has financial problems um, after actually paying the bills. So having that conversation with the client and knowing um, some of the costs um, of referral is really important. And then just giving them an outline of, um, you know, what to expect um, when the animal gets to the hospital, realizing that, yep, you know what, they're going to pass a nasogastric tube again. They're going to rectal the animal again. You know, they're going to put um, you know, an IV, they may put an IV catheter and that sort of thing, just so that, um, just so the client's expectations are um, realistic. Um, the other thing is too, knowing maybe some peculiarities of the referral hospital, like a lot of times um, 
They might require the client to wait at the front desk while the animal's worked up. I personally like to have my client there so they can see what I'm doing, sort of be very transparent. Um, I feel that kind of helps. Um, at the moment with this COVID situation, um, our clients are dropping their animals and we're doing dropping them off and we're doing it all by telephone. So it's a little bit different at the moment, but just helping the clients have realistic expectations of what's gonna happen to their animal and also um, of the finances involved in this is really, really, really critical. Um, the other thing is too, finding out the client's expectations after surgery. Um, an example is, okay, this, this horse absolutely has to be a racehorse or, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of um, having those expectations and, and horses can do very well um, with racing um, and performance after college surgery. But, you know, they might just, just having those expectations, having the veterinarian at the referral hospital understand and know those expectations um, are, is important um, as well. And that is a, an excellent point is to make sure that your client knows what to expect after the surgery. So let's go into the recurrent colic cases. How do you help that horse and the client? These are, are kind of the bane of a lot of veterinarians' existence. Yes, this is, um, and this is an area that I'm really interested in um, clinically. It's a challenge. And also, um, you know, looking at research, we're looking into, you know, the microbiota and, you know, changes, um, histological changes in the colon to try and understand what is going on with these horses to try and understand what is the dysfunction, what is the problem um, with them. And so, you know, recurrent colic, yeah, it, it is the bane of, I think it is the bane of um, everybody's life. I think we see it more. And so there's, a, there's obviously an infinite number of causes of recurrent colic. Um, for example, if you lived out in California and you had a horse with recurrent colic, you would be thinking enterolithiasis. Okay, so you'd radiograph the abdomen um, and you'd probably find an entrolith there and you'd surgically remove it. Similarly, if you live in a sandy area, a horse with recurrent colic, you'd be thinking SAM. So there's those sort of, you know, fairly straightforward causes. Um, one of the challenges that we see after small intestine and small colon surgery is that adhesions. And so if they've had that surgery before, you know, probably you know, 10, maybe 20% of horses can have problems with adhesions after those surgeries. And so they can have problems with recurrent colic from that. So those are fairly, you know, a little bit more black and white, understandable reasons for recurrence. The ones that are the challenge are the horses that have recurrent displacement. Sometimes they just have recurrent gas colic. Um, and those horses, um, those horses are a challenge to manage. And I mean, I wish I had great answers um, for everybody. I mean, try diet modification. I mean, we try pellets, try turning them out on pasture, that sort of thing. But, you know, one, that's one of the areas that um, myself and some of my colleagues, you know, are trying to do research into to try and understand, um, is there something going on with the microbiota, the, the, the flora in the gastrointestinal tract that's causing these disturbances? Is there something functional? I mean, obviously they have a functional problem. Is there something functional 
you know, with their, um, you know, intestinal motility, you know, what is that? And then ultimately, what can we do to help them? But that is a big, that is a big challenge. Well, that's kind of a great um, overlook at recurrent colic. And I'm sure the veterinarians listening are, will, will be sympathetic to everyone who has had to deal with this with the horse and the client. Is there anything else, any research that you have going on currently or anything that else you would like to share with us? Yeah, we definitely, um, I mean, yeah, the big areas that I'm doing research and I kind of alluded it to a little bit with, um, with, um, you know, this early identification of strangulation is one thing we're looking at is um, one thing we are trying to look at and hopefully um, the, the individual I'm working with um, will be able to get this published um, in the near future is looking at blood glucose um, at admission to see if we can differentiate strangulating from non-strangulating obstructions. Um, typically, you know, what we've found is horses with a high blood glucose, and we've defined high as greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter, that makes us more concerned they have a strangulation. Um, not that we take them to surgery just because they got a high blood glucose, absolutely not, but we, th that would lead us to pursue more diagnostics. One of the challenges, um, you know, does that apply in the field? You know, does that apply in a primary care setting? And um, I haven't got the answer to that. I mean, that's something I'd be really interested in looking at. Um, the other thing that we're looking at similarly, you know, one of the things is quite a bit in the literature on peritoneal fluid, uh, lactate concentration and comparing that to, um, blood lactate and you know what are the cutoff values and that's also something that we're trying to look at as well um, because anecdotally in our clinic we have a lot of horses um, that are sort of in the gray zone um, and um, you know and so it's difficult to interpret so we're trying to refine that a little bit as well once again with the goal of getting these horses um, with strangulations to surgery um, ASAP. So, um, and then, you know, I was actually just talking to um, another veterinarian and, and she was asking, she was asking about, you know, performance after colic surgery, because I mentioned, you know, our goal isn't just to discharge them from the hospital alive. I mean, it used to be 20, 30 years ago. Yep, that was a success. We got them home. But now, you know, I think the expectations are higher as they should be. And so um, looking long-term, um, at some of these animals and, and how they did. And we did do a racehorse study. This was a few years ago, looking at racing performance um, of horses after colic surgery and comparing that their performance after surgery to that of their cohort. So we got two horses from their race prior to colic surgery and two horses that did not have colic surgery. And we followed them out. And of the horses that returned to racing, which is about 76%, um, they performed as well as their cohorts. Um, and then there was actually a study, so that was, you know, the Northeast of the United States. There was also a study out of California that had pretty similar results, like surprisingly similar results. So, you know, that tells us that these horses, you know, that have colic surgery, they can actually do well. Um, I've also looked at geriatric horses after colic surgery. And looking, because one of the concerns of owners is, oh my gosh, my horse is in its 20s. Um, is he going to survive surgery? Is he going to have more complications um, because he's older? 
And we looked at that. And basically, geriatric courses um, do as well as non-geriatric courses. They can do very, very well with college surgery. And I think part of it is, if you've made it, if you're a horse and you've made it to your 20s and 30s, then um, you can make it through college surgery, once again, with early referral. Um, so those horses can do very well. I will tell you, though, a 30-year-old horse is not going to live as long as a 12-year-old horse just because they're older, but they can do well um, with colic surgery for several years. Well, that's great news, and that's probably something that the ambulatory vets will love to be able to tell to their clients who have geriatric horses, which, according to our surveys, is just about everyone these days. So yeah. well, we, want, we want to thank you, Dr. Southwood, for being our guest on today's episode of Disease Du Jour. And thank you for listening to Disease Du Jour, and a special thanks to our 2020 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Please listen and rate previous and future episodes of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Follow Equimanagement on Facebook or send us an email to kbrown at aimmedia.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network.